right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this wonderful morning. I missed you guys last week. I know G. Yoon did a great job. I mentioned first service he was in Israel because I thought he left yesterday, but he's leaving this next week to Israel. So can y'all give G a hand for doing a great job last week? John chapter 4. This is so hard. We're going through the book of John and almost chapter by chapter, which is tough, isn't it, G? There's so much to say. There's only been like a million billion books written about each one of these things. But if you're new with us, this is what we're doing for the summer uh, in our amazingly eloquently titled The Book of John series. Uh, this summer, we're going through the book of John. And if you're not familiar with the book of John, it's the fourth gospel. John was a friend of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, one of the closest of the 12, Peter, James, and John. Uh, he wrote one of the, the last gospel. He was the oldest one uh, to live and not be killed, martyred ultimately. Um, and John has a lot to say about who Jesus is, which is what we're about. City Life Church is about Jesus. Not a man-centered faith, not a worship-centered faith. It's a Christ-centered faith. We're a Christ-centered church. And so I hope you love and want to dive into the Scripture to see as John is portraying this amazing image and story of who Jesus is. That he is fully God, fully man, full of truth, full of grace. And we've seen that as we've been exploring. If you've been keeping up, up with us or podcasts or whatever we've been going through, we're going to be in John chapter 5 today. But we've seen... John, begin with John the Baptist and who Jesus is and him coming in and being baptized by John the Baptist. And we saw also Jesus turning water into wine and we've seen his miracles. We've seen his conversations with rabbis and teachers and other Jewish instructors of the law and synagogues as well as a scandalous woman last week. We've seen him interact with his mother and his disciples so far as we're almost about uh, almost halfway through this series today as we're just gonna take it to John 11 by the end of the summer. But John chapter five, there's so many powerful things. Today we're gonna see Jesus speak with Jewish um, individuals and Orthodox Jews that are frustrated that he's healing people on the Sabbath. So let's dive straight into John chapter five. I'm going to read through it, then we're going to come back and explore and talk about it. Let's see how awesome Jesus is. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind Lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, 
Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We want to hear, we want to understand so we ask that you open the eyes of our heart to see you clearly, to see Jesus for who he is, Lord, and to marvel at your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 5, let's start in verse 1. As we read earlier, it says, after this... What is this? Um, if you're familiar with John chapter four, Jesus has now has healed an official son and done an amazing, miraculous thing. And he's coming from um, the Galilee area. And so it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, geographically, this is interesting because Jesus is actually north of Jerusalem. And so when we hear up and see up, we think, well, he's heading north, right? I'm gonna go up to Dallas or I'm gonna go up to Oklahoma. And so for us, we think in that, those terms in there, it's interesting to note, he's actually north already and he goes up and the the Bible says up, not because they don't know what they're saying, but because it is literally a journey up because he has climbed up mountains. Ultimately, Jerusalem is on two mountains. And so you need to understand that. It's just helpful. You're welcome. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Let me show you a picture of what this would look like when we go to Israel. You can actually see like all of Jerusalem in, in, in all of these little, um, um, what's this art that was made and was created. So you can see kind of first century what it would look like. It's actually crazy. The last trip we took, several of you got to go with us and it was, we had a good time and we're there and we're looking at this amazing piece of art where you're seeing kind of what the temple would have looked like and everything. And then there was this, like this bird that came and was like, it was like Godzilla, like, because this bird, you know, this big, but it's all the different scale. And it was like a hundred times, a thousand times smaller, something like that. And so it was funny. I just get this image of like this bird stepping on the temple. Sorry, that's me. Um, and so 
I want to show you a little bit. If we were actually facing, we would be on the Mount of Olives looking at the east wall. And you see the temple. You see, ultimately, if you continue to go, um, you would see where the crucifixion is going to happen. You have the Antonia, which is where um, the Romans would position themselves. Pilate would be there, live there. And uh, all of the guards would come in and be there. And then you have, of course, a pool of Israel. You have Bethesda. And you have the sheep gate. Now, this is interesting because Jesus would have traveled south, come here, and would have been in Bethesda, right here, and been on a mission. He would be heading for festival, for a festival into the temple ultimately, but he would come and make a pit stop here at the pools of Bethesda. Bethesda means the house of mercy, or a way I, I like to call it, the place of grace. It rhymes. It's easy. That's what it means, the place of grace. And we're going to see a very grace-given, merciful act Jesus does to heal this man of 38 years. Now, what's interesting, it does mention that there is an actual sheep gate by this place because John is trying to show you this actually happened. This is history. You can actually look at this and create the story and understand the geography based on what it is that I'm saying. And so for years, we didn't even know necessarily. We had an idea because of John where Bethesda would be, but they did an archaeological dig and found out, you can go to the next slide, that this is what it looks like when you go there. You can actually see how deep it goes. They excavated it and they're continuing to excavate it even to this day and see all the pools and you see where churches were planted, Byzantine area and all of these different things. So you see the history behind what it is that John is portraying. So this isn't just some random story. Somebody in a cave is writing to help you maybe believe in this guy, Jesus, but he gives us actual factual places that you can think and look at. Go, go back to the slide before real quick for me, Deidre. Thank you. So we've got, it says it's at Bethesda, which means house of mercy or place of grace. And you've got the sheep gate. It's an interesting thing. Jesus would, and it would mention, John would mention the sheep gate because earlier John mentions that Jesus is the lamb of God. Um, what John the Baptist had said about Jesus and what they would do is they would have flocks outside of Jerusalem in Bethlehem area that they would raise. They would bring them, and a better name for this is the flock gate, and they would bring the flock through here. They would check them, check the sheep and the flock for blemishes, and if they had blemishes, they'd say, no, send them away, because they can only make sacrifices in the temple of unblemished sheep. And so Jesus is in this place of grace near the sheep gate as the lamb of God that will constantly throughout the gospels be checked for blemishes from the religious leaders, everybody. And the Bible is constantly saying he is the Messiah. He checks great, is without sin, is perfect. And he is the lamb that will ultimately be slain for us. You're welcome. It's an amazing truth that John is trying to portray constantly about who Jesus is, even in referencing, you know, this was by the sheep gate. Let's go to the next slide. Verse three, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, so you need to picture you've got these pools and you've got multitudes of people 
blind, lame, paralyzed, because they would be around, it says, those pools, because it was believed that an angel of the Lord would stir the pools and they would dive in and the people that could get in during that time would be healed. Now that sounds superstitious and crazy to us, but today we have the same thing. We have hot springs and we have places that people believe if we enter into these pools, there's a healing effect. There's something that happens. In fact, if you go to Israel in the Dead Sea, there's all these, all the minerals and all the things like it's going to bring healing to my body in certain capacities. Many religions believe this. If we do these things, then we're going to get this type of healing. And that's where the invalid and blind and lame, multitudes of them would be. It would be a really sad sight for anybody to go. And if Jesus wanted to just go enjoy the festival, that's probably not somewhere he would stop by. It's not somewhere you would go unintentionally. But Jesus has a mission and, and we see right here, there's multitudes of them. And it says this, one man, multitudes, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now I highlight that I'm 39 years old. So I think about 38 years of being lame, of not being able to walk of being stuck and having to have people carry you even to this place in order to maybe get healed for 38 years. I think you need to feel the weight of that. Think about that, not just move past, but this is an actual human being that has been struggling for the same thing for 38 years, believing that maybe today's the day I'm gonna get in the water and something miraculously is gonna happen to me. When Jesus saw him laying there, again, he's the multitudes, but Jesus, it's almost like he's stepping over this guy and over that guy and over those people and tiptoeing to this in order to get to this guy. It's like he has a mission. It's like he's been given instructions and orders for that one guy. It's like he's hearing something and going directly, militantly to a place. When Jesus saw him laying, lying there, I love this, and knew that he had already been there a long time. Now, he either knew that because Jesus has often goes to the temple area or to Jerusalem, and maybe he had seen him in the past, or maybe 1 Corinthians refers to spiritual gifts, and there's a gift called words of knowledge, Maybe in his knower, in his spirit, the Holy Spirit is speaking to him and he looks at that guy and he knows something that he should not know that only God knows about him. I've had this happen to me from people that don't know me from anything and speak exactly a conversation I've had with my wife the night before and I'm going, okay, that's God. There's no way you knew that unless you're a stalker and this is getting awkward, right? Like it's a word of knowledge, something you should not know and it's given to you specifically, I think, as a word of knowledge for us to know God and to be able to know something about someone to help them ultimately. This is, you see this, so Jesus is operating in the spirit. He's walking according to the spirit, being led by the spirit to where he's specifically supposed to be. 
And he shows up to him. And imagine all of these sick people and all these lame people laying around. And it seems so sensitive what he says, so insensitive what he says. He says, do you want to be healed? I actually really love this because we think of Jesus, and before this, we've seen him turn water to wine, and he's healing people all over. He's doing all these amazing things. And so you imagine he's rolling up his sleeves and just ready to go, but he approaches different people differently as if he, like, cares about the individual. He's not just this massive, like, healing guy that just waves his hand and everyone gets healed. But he's interested in something more than just physical healing, but a heart change, something different. When we often think, if only this area would change my life, then I would know God is real, or then I would know God would care about me. And Jesus is going, there's more to this thing, and I have more to offer. But even so much, I'm not just going to heal you and move on. I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be healed? I think God often comes to us and asks this question because we can get so stuck in our ways or our ailment or our addiction or our thing where it becomes like a pet that we're just like so used to, right? It's like, it's like our, our blanket, like Linus, that you just have to have and we're so comfortable with it. If you guys know me at all, you know my favorite movie is The Matrix because I'm so philosophical. And I love the movie The Matrix because... When they show Neo the truth, and maybe he's 30 or in his 30s, he's older, and they tell him at one point, we usually don't kind of open people that are earlier their mind to this reality because they're so stuck in their ways, it's actually hard to get them out and to think something differently. And I think there's some kind of truth to this where Jesus is saying, you've been this way for so long, and you've learned how to even manage it. Do you want to be healed? I don't think he's being insensitive. I think he's speaking truth. Do you just live in your truth and your way and the thing that you've believed? But do you even want to be healed? Do you really want to change? It's an interesting question to ask. And notice his response. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He doesn't say, yes, Jesus, obviously, duh, what's wrong with you? He doesn't even know it's Jesus. He's just like some random dude comes up to him like, hey, dude, do you want to be healed? And he doesn't cry out in desperation. What he says is, I don't have any help. I don't have anyone that will help me because, see, I've seen the pool get stirred or something seemingly happen, maybe, and I'm just waiting. Or even if it, if it did, like, I, I don't know. I can't do it myself. And then he says, not only can I not do it myself, but I've got people that are cutting me off and getting it. They're the problem. They're the one keeping me ultimately. So it's my own, I I can't physically do it myself. And then when I want to, or even if I could, there's people that cut me off. I think this guy understood Houston traffic. (laughs) My father-in-law is here from Oklahoma and he was visiting his um, 
brother who has colon cancer and had surgery this week. And so we've been hosting him and it's been a, it's been a tough situation in our family, but thank God it's a great surgery. Um, things are going, uh, going smooth. And he was heading to the hospital and he's learning Houston. He's from Elk City, Oklahoma. So uh, a little, little quieter, a little slower. And, and he's driving and he's trying to get a parking spot and he's waiting. He's got his blinker on, which I'm like, don't just, just go. And he's waiting for this person to back up and this other person cuts them off. Then they back up and they just zoom right in. And he's just like, like, welcome. <laughs> Even when I want a parking space, someone cuts me off. It's those people, it's that. I can't, they won't let me. This is the response. And it becomes an excuse. And I think the reason why Jesus even said, do you even want to be healed? I think it's beautiful though, because we know he heals them. And we see this because even in this man's lack of faith and excuses, there's mercy in the place of grace. And the mercy and grace of God, despite him and his excuses and his inability, Jesus heals him. In other, in other words, saying, the guy saying, what I'm currently doing is not working. And Jesus says, that's, that's all I need. All I need is for you to realize that where you currently are is not getting you to where God wants you to be. Enter Jesus. And what does he say to him? He says, verse eight, get up, take up your bed and walk. I, I love this because in other scriptures, it'll give you kind of behind the scenes a lot of times with Jesus' miracles. You'll hear things like uh, Jesus full of compassion or Jesus touched them or he would, you know, put, make mud and put on their eyes or he'd give people wet willies and they would hear. And, and like you would see all of these interactions, these different displays, but he treats everyone individually as if he knows them and knows what they need. And with this guy, you don't see a lot of compassion in the place of mercy and grace. It's almost as if he's told what to do and Jesus just does it like an officer, like a military general telling his troops, just do it. There's not a lot of compassion here in the place of grace. It's just get up. Pick up your bed, your mat, which is how they would sleep, your bed, and walk. And I love this. And at once the man was healed. It's, it's almost as if he's laying there and Jesus is so authoritative. He carries so much conviction and power that upon the words, nothing that guy did, he just starts feeling like things in his leg and nerve endings and he's going, I guess I pick up my mat and walk. And that's what he does. At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked Verse seven, the sick man, I'm sorry, verse nine, next slide. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. What is the deal with the Sabbath? Well, let me give you current day. 
Sabbath traditions. It's a day of rest. You're not supposed to work. And it started in Exodus 16, but it became laws and regulations that were more than we can handle. Let me give you, show you a video clip of a, a movie called Religious. I'm gonna let Bill Maher help me preach the gospel today, who's a strong atheist. Check this out, what Bill Maher exposes about the Sabbath. The centuries have uh, created these prohibitions as a way to try to protect the day of rest. You can't use electricity, you can't drive. Let's talk a little bit about keeping the Sabbath holy. I've always wondered if it came about because God rested on the, on the Sabbath, and that's why man has to. That's right, and that was the creation of the seventh day, that there should be rest. There are 39 types of specific actions that cannot be done on the Sabbath. Mm. One of them is lighting a fire, planting. Another one is plowing. Another one is tying a knot, untying a knot. One is building, and one is destroying so as to build. So much more kosher is to develop these gadgets that figure out a way around it. That's right. It does seem that you are, to a degree, trying to outsmart God. <laughs> if the lawmaker never makes a mistake, and still there's a loophole there. But how did, the, how did this get updated for a 4,000-year-old rule? It seems there's an awful lot that has to do with electricity. Rev Halpern's work here is translating it into something more modern. Let's look at some of the gadgets you have. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the, in the phone. Is there not a, a cell phone? Um, it's not a cell phone. Okay. Wow. That, that, I have to say, that looks modern. Each number is trying to dial itself all the time. When I take the stick and I put it into the hole, I'm inhibiting that, which is inhibiting the number from dialing itself. All right, let me ask you about this. It's obviously a wheelchair. Can I, may I? Sure. Um, Oh, it's, uh, oh. This runs on air pressure, correct? Right? Basically, we've got 150 atmospheres of pressure here. We've got the turning it on, turning it off here. So air is okay. Air, air good, fire bad. Fire bad? Fire bad! We've taken an old bicycle, uh, um, I forgot what it's called. Tire. Okay. Air goes in. Air goes out. Um, that would be fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's a Shabbat evader. Let me guess. You can't push a button. Correct. On the Sabbath. The issues behind the scenes that people don't see are the real problems. An even bigger problem might be how do you get someone to put this in their building if they're not completely nuts? <laughs> well, actually, that really doesn't make a difference. Okay. So if that bothers you that we showed Bill Maher, let's talk about the Sabbath and religion traditions. It's interesting to me, Bill Maher does something, he exposes some of the absurdity of the laws and the regulations that come upon the Sabbath. When the religious people see that Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, this is breaking Sabbath laws, which is a day of rest, and you're not even supposed to apply medicine and work to that. You're not, you're not allowed to carry a mat. You can wear the mat if you make it a part of your clothing, but you can't carry a mat because that's work. And so when God establishes the Sabbath, the religious people get a hold of it 
Take the relational aspect and the purpose of it and distort it because now we're trying to figure out what work means. So when God says don't work, does that mean I can't walk to someone's house? And they decided, well, walking is kind of work, but we don't want to make you just have to stand still and be an invalid. We think you should be able to walk. So they came up with this, no more than a thousand feet you're allowed to walk from your home. Then they asked the question, what do you mean by home? Hmm. And they said, well, how do we determine what a home is? This is first century. They say, well, a home is a place that you eat and you can eat on the Sabbath. You can't prepare food. You need to have it ready. But you could make arrangements a day in advance and prepare food. And so you could actually take it less than a thousand yards or feet to a friend's house, have all your food there ready so you could walk there on the Sabbath to eat. And then now because you're home, you can walk either back home or to someone else's house to feast again, as long as it's within a thousand yards. You see how this works? This is not the law of God that God created. You see, God creates man on the sixth day, right? He breathes life into him. And a Jewish day, Friday would end at night. So our Friday evening would start the Sabbath all the way till the next day. And they're looking for three stars in the sky, starts the night. As soon as I see that third star, it's over. As soon as I see that first star, that's the end of night. And so they would have from Friday night all the way to the third star on Saturday would be their Sabbath. And so God creates man On the sixth day, which would be Friday, he breathes life into him. And the next day, that evening, would be the Sabbath and God would say, I'm going to rest. And so the first thing, Adam and Eve, I want you to know about me is I'm not as as passionate about you doing certain things, although I have a mission for you and I have a mandate or a thing I'm calling and commissioning you towards, but I'm not as concerned about that. You've got other days to do it. Your first day, I want to spend time with you. Your first day alive, ultimately, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you because you're a human being, not a human doing. Although I have duties for you, I have a mandate for you. But first, let's have a man date. First, let's have a relationship. And Jesus says, that's the point of the Sabbath. And you've turned it into something else where you have all of these laws to make yourself pious and we do these things right and we've destroyed a relational God and a personal God so that we can have a man-made God with all the rules and regulations and make ourselves righteous. This is what every religion does. And this is what Jesus has walked into and he's healed a guy. You know, at that time, if you had a toothache, you're not allowed to put vinegar on your tooth to help it, but you could get around that Sabbath law because you can't do medicine, apply medicine by dipping your bread into vinegar and then eating it. Let's get around it. And Jesus says, what's the problem? They're so frustrated that it's the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's amazing you were healed, what happened? What did they say? It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
What are you doing carrying your bed? Maybe they didn't know he was healed. So here he goes. Verse 15, the man, I'm sorry, verse 11. And he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. That, that, that dude, he, said, he told me to do it and I was healed. They didn't say, oh, wow, tell me about your ailment. What happened? Tell me your story. Who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? We're not rejoicing. You have a changed life. In fact, your changed life could affect my religious background and tradition. Because this should not happen. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. Jesus didn't announce himself. He simply did the work he was called to do for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. So apparently the man carries his mat to the temple to worship God and Jesus sees him and Jesus is teaching in the temple, often even doing miracles, often we have seen. And Jesus sees him and says to him, see your well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I have to give this caveat, even though I don't have a lot of time, um, that not all sin is, or all disease is because of sin. Jesus makes that clear. But for this man specifically, he's saying, you need to be careful. Same thing, the woman caught in adultery, was being ready to be stoned. And what does he say? Where are your accusers? Sin no more. God's not interested in just, I'm heal you and do whatever you want. No, like, because I healed you, that should create some kind of love and adoration to say, I want to follow you instead of continue to follow my desires and myself. That's called lordship. That's called being a Christian, following Christ, a little Christ follower. And he says this to him. So what does the man do? He goes away and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus. It was that guy. You know Jesus. And I think they had an idea who it was. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus knew this would happen. He knew even just healing this guy could get him persecuted. And yet he loved so deeply and was so under authority of what God told him to do, which we're about to see, that he did it anyway sacrificed himself in order to see this man healed. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. He says, I see the father working, he's moving. You think he shouldn't be working, but he's here to heal every day. Don't limit God, don't put him in a box you're not even serving the right God. And I love what he says, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Look at this. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, breaking their traditions, their history, to them, the word of God, he's breaking that. He's breaking our idea of who God is and what life is like. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Not only is he breaking tradition, but listen, Jesus is explicit about who he is. And John's trying to get you to understand this. It's not just something that was formulated hundreds of years later that Jesus became God because the church wants to control you. But even right here, they understood when you say, I am the son and he is my, I'm calling him father, not just God or Yahweh. I'm calling him father. I'm making myself equal because I'm, I'm saying he's working. 
I'm working. And look at this, verse 19. So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus says to them, listen, I'm under orders. I have a mission. My mission is about relationship and love, but restoring what was broken relationally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And I only do what the Father tells me to do. I, 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 God said him, I'm going after him, even if it's gonna cost me persecution because I'm under authority and I have authority. See, when someone steps up with that level of authority, it, it rocks tradition and religiosity that is just trying to contain God in a man-made position and way because what we want to do is if I can control how everything works, then it's easy for me to step into it, but I'm just stepping into works righteousness. If I go to church enough, if I read this book, if I have this self-help thing, then now I'm holy. And Jesus says, listen, you can't trap God in a box. Although he has things and laws and commandments, ultimately at the end of the day, your work will never save you, but my work will. We're gonna talk about this more next week in John 6. But I wanna hint at it as we close today because you see, when Jesus is hanging on a cross on a Friday, the Bible says he dies, and we don't know anything that's happening Saturday, except it gives us a glimpse that he goes, it says, into Hades and preaches the good news, and he is working on a Saturday while we're resting as a people. And I think Jesus is alluding to this. My father's working and I'm working. In fact, while you rest on Saturday, I will be doing the greatest work in all of human history for you and you and you, your salvation ultimately, to give you a rest that is every day. And I believe that's the takeaway for this scripture in one sentence. Jesus's miraculous work on Saturday means I can have miraculous rest every day. I can rest. You know what this means to me? I, as many of you know, I have a, my biological father's in prison right now. And I, I talked to him on the phone yesterday and the anxiousness and all the things and I could find myself well, I've got to be a better dad to my kids because they don't have a granddad anymore. And I've got to work harder. And I've got a retirement plan because I don't have any help from my family because we lost everything. What am I going to do? And I could find myself anxious and full of worry and yet show up to church and go, God, you're in control. And yet I find myself anxious and full of worry. And God says, do you have a true rest in my work, not in your own? not something you have to do and muster up because when you enter into my rest because of my work for you, now you're free. 
don't have to feel anxious about what you think and what you think and what you're going to do and what you're going to do. And if I'm going to get that raise or if I'm going to get that bonus or if I'm going to get that thing. Because at the end of the day, it's all grace. Because Jesus did the work for me. I can't earn my way to what I really want. And that's a relationship and a security with my father. But I have one who did that for me so I can have security and love and grace and stand high and proud as a child of God and point to Jesus and say, it's his work, not mine. It's what he did, not what I do. That's a place of grace. How often we try to figure out God and life and circumstances and put God in our debt by doing good things and God's going, you need a deep rest. David says it this way, Psalm 3. God, look, enemies past counting, enemies sprouting like mushrooms, mobs of them all around me, roaring their mockery. Ha, no help for him from God. But you, God, Shield me on all sides. You crown my feet. You lift my head. With all my might, I shout up to God. His answer thunders from the holy mountain. I stretch myself out. I sleep. Then I'm up again, rested tall and steady, fearless before the enemy mobs coming at me from all side. Up, God, my God, help me. Slap their faces, first this cheek, then the other. Your fist hard in their teeth. Real help comes from God. Your blessing clothes your people. Will you stand to your feet with me? David says, I've got all of these things to do and all of these things around me and against me. And he says, God is my help, so I sleep. Experts say it's not the amount of sleep, it's not a quantity, but it's actually the depth of the REM sleep that you need in order to rest your body. And I think David's talking about an REM of the soul, like I rest in you. And I'm not weary from trying to earn anything anymore, but it's you because of the work that you do for me. And now I rise and I'm watching you destroy my enemies and take on things that I could never do on my own, but now I'm rested to do what you've called me to do. Will you bow your head with me? God, I pray for everyone here that you will open our heart and our eyes and our lives to all that you have for us this day. If you're here and you're weary and you're tired and you're anxious and you're worried about tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and you have all of these things surrounding you, maybe some of you 38 years worth of thoughts and ways and God comes and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to experience my grace? 
my yoke is easy. My teaching is easy. My burden is light because I'm going to do the ultimate work that you'll never be able to do for you to experience the ultimate relationship that you're truly longing for. If you're in here and that's you and you're just battling this and this, I got to do this and this, just raise your hand high. Come on, don't be ashamed. Say, I want to be healed. Hands all around. It's not religious or a to-do list that's going to get you there. It's not a new self-help book, although those things are helpful and good, but it starts with saying, God, I want to be healed. I can't do it myself. I need a Savior. God, I pray for everyone here that's raising their hands and I pray that you take their burden. Give them a rest in their soul knowing they are a child of God by coming to you as Savior and Lord. As they raise their hand, Lord, lift their hand and hold it up higher. Comforting. Bring peace. Let your authority fall. Be healed in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your life and your love and your grace in Jesus' name.